Well, if you were to read through the entire Bible, you would find the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ spread all throughout the scriptures. The, the Old Testament points to the coming of Jesus Christ. The gospels point to the life of Jesus Christ, and everything after that points to the church of Jesus Christ, which means it's all about Jesus Christ. The, the message has never changed. However, the way that message gets delivered to the world, well, that has changed dramatically over time through, through the story of God's people and then through the prophets and, and then through Jesus himself and his disciples. We see the message of Christ being shared, but then from Acts 1 after he ascends to heaven and then in Acts 2 after sending his Holy Spirit to his followers, from then until the second coming of Christ, in other words, from the time Jesus left this earth until he comes back again. The gospel message has been entrusted to the church. Okay, the, the church is God's plan for spreading God's message. In fact, there is no backup plan. We're, we're it, which means we're united, not only by a common spirit, but also by a common purpose to make disciples of Jesus Christ by sharing his gospel. And sharing that common purpose also means we share a common enemy. It's not a very popular subject, but it's true nonetheless. The apostle Peter warned the church, be sober-minded. He said, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. First Peter 5.8, that was a warning to all Christians in every age that we have a common enemy who is constantly seeking ways to attack the church. Just as any enemy in a war will attack on many fronts, so too the devil will come against the church in as many different ways as he can. And one of the most effective strategies in a war is when one side is able to undermine the other from within their own ranks, right? If, if one army can get uh, a man on the inside of the opposing army. That one spy can often wreak more havoc than any full-on assault from the outside. It's a strategy that Satan actually has used against the church since the inception of the church. In fact, far more damage has been done to the church of Jesus Christ over the centuries from within than any attack from without. One of my favorite uh, modern scholars, Nancy Piercy, has studied trends in church growth, specifically uh, within the context of the church's relationship to the culture around it throughout history. And based on that research, she writes, it is a common assumption that in order to survive, churches must accommodate to the age. But in fact, the opposite is true. In every historical period, the religious groups that grow most rapidly are those that set believers at odds with the surrounding culture. As a general principle, the higher a group's tension with mainstream society, the higher its growth rate. Okay? Generally speaking, the more the church is persecuted by the outside world, the more it thrives. In fact, sometimes an attack on the church from the outside is the best thing that can ever happen to us because it wakes the church up. It calls the church to action and it unifies the church when we're attacked from without. Because listen, <laughs> the moment real persecution from the outside world descends upon the church, the moment that happens, 
All of our differences within the church don't mean nearly as much as they did the day before the persecution started, right? When the government tells you it's illegal to teach the Bible, when preaching the gospel can get you arrested or assaulted or even killed, when, when simply gathering together, as we've done here this morning, puts your very life at risk, all of a sudden, the music selection, the style of the building, right? How cool, or in my case, how uncool the pastor is. Which translation of the Bible is being used? I'm telling you, those things don't matter to anyone anymore. Not when you're risking your life just to be with other Christians. You see, outside pressures, they cannot destroy the church. In fact, you'll, you'll rarely even ever find local churches that wither and die because of some outside pressure. What you will very often find among local churches that end up shutting their doors for good, you will very often find that something has happened within the church itself that ultimately led to its demise. You see, if the enemy can get a man or a woman on the inside to do his bidding, he can do far more damage to the church that way than he can by attacking it from without. And so any pastor who's worth his salt as the shepherd of a local church will be as much a protector of the flock as he is a teacher or a counselor or a mentor or an encourager to the flock. And the reason I'm bringing all of this up is because it's exactly why the Apostle John was writing these letters to the churches in and around Ephesus that we've been studying together because the local church was under attack from within. And so as a local church pastor, John writes these letters to root out those who were working to undermine the church and to warn the true believers not to put up with anything from among themselves that was detrimental to the unity of the church. And, and as harsh uh, and confrontational as John is throughout these letters at times, and man, he really is, the motivation behind the writing is pure love for the church. You see, loving the church above all others except Christ himself, that was a hallmark of those early apostles, so much so that they demanded the church members ruthlessly defend the unity within the church from those who sought to undermine that unity from within. Because sometimes loving others means doing hard things, doesn't it? Right? If you're a parent, you certainly know that. We discipline our kids. Why? Because we love them. Right? That's, that's what John is doing here. And so two weeks ago, we finished the first letter of John. And today we're going to work through the second and third letters actually together because not only uh, are they both very short, but together they address the most common sources of division within the church. In fact, each of these two letters highlights a specific source of disunity within the church that needed to be addressed for the very survival of the church. And so the issues that he calls out in these letters, they couldn't be any more serious. In fact, as we'll see, these were the very same issues addressed over and over again by nearly all of the New Testament writers and by Jesus himself, who always reserved their harshest criticisms and gravest consequences for those who were working against the church from within the church. And interestingly enough, uh, you'll find the general attitude among the early church fathers was never to try 
and keep the world or the culture around us morally in check, right? Because the world is going to be the world. That's not our job as the church to police the culture around us. We're simply supposed to love people in the world with the love of Christ right where they are. It's not our job to be the moral police of the world. Rather, our job when it comes to holding people accountable for their behavior, our job is to keep our own house in order, to keep the church in check. Why? To maintain the unity that we need in order to do what Christ has called us to do. Otherwise, the mission of the church completely falls apart. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and the swindlers, idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. In other words, that's all there is in this world. So as Christians, don't, don't isolate yourself from the world. Don't cut off your communication with those who are unbelievers. No, he says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. He's talking about fellow Christians if he's guilty of sexual immorality or those who claim to be Christians. Those who are guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. This is a big deal. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, uh, is it not those inside, Paul says, the church, in here whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Why would Paul write something so harsh? Why take such a hard line towards some of the people inside the church? It is actually because of the love that Paul had for the church. He loved the church only second to the way that he loved Jesus Christ. And because of that great love that he felt for the church, he wasn't willing to allow anything to divide her from within. Now, it's important to note here, he's not talking about Christians in the church who make mistakes or at times commit sins. We're all guilty of that. We can all just go home if that's who he's talking about, including your pastor, right? We're all guilty of that. No, Paul is talking about those, both those within the church who are counterfeit believers, false teachers, those who call themselves Christians, but they're actually leading others consciously, intentionally away from the faith by teaching their own variations of the gospel, and also those who rebel against the authority of the church and lead others to do the same, which in both cases causes great disunity. It, it creates ruptures, divisions inside the church. And if you study church history, you will find that false teaching and rebellion are the two most common causes of churches imploding from within. And so Paul says, deal harshly with those people. Purge them, he says, from among yourselves. Don't associate with them at all. Don't even eat with them. Have nothing to do with the one who would attempt to divide the church. And as we'll see, John and Jesus and the other apostles all say the very same thing. And again, uh, it, it seems to be a very hard line. The teaching here is at times actually very harsh, but we cannot forget the subject of the teaching that we're dealing with. It's the church, the bride of Christ. Jesus died for her, 
which means we're supposed to fight for her, right? Guys, people out in the world, they, they mistreat one another all the time. It, it's actually horrible. But we've almost come to expect it in our culture. But if someone mistreats your bride, the one you love above, above all others, the one person you've given your life to, you don't stand for that. No. No, the reaction is both swift and severe. You don't mess with my bride. Okay? We'll see here that Jesus and Paul and Peter and John, they all say the same of his bride, his church. We are to protect her from being attacked by those from within, those who would consciously, intentionally try to divide her. So we fight for her purity and the unity that he's called us to maintain, not merely out of obligation, but out of a great love for the church, for that is our witness to the world. That's what enables us to carry out our common purpose, to share the gospel with those who have yet to accept it. But that can only happen when we are united in truth and in love. We cannot love those outside the church if we do not love those inside the church. You may think you can. I know people who think they can. You cannot. There, there, is, there is no reality where a Christian can effectively love those in the world while simultaneously despising the church. You cannot hold a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. It's scripturally incompatible. So ask yourself, do I love the church? <laughs> do I love the church like the martyrs have throughout the ages? Do I love the church like the apostles did who suffered for her? Do I love the church like Jesus did who died for her? Do I love the church enough to defend her from anything that would divide us from within? We must if we're going to be who God created us to be. We must love the church enough to protect her from anything that would divide us, which is what John is addressing here head on in these last two letters. So we're going to finish a sermon series for this morning on the letters of John by uh, reading 2nd and 3rd John together. Let's turn to 2nd John and we'll start out with the first three verses. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. So John addresses this second letter to the elect lady and her children. It sounds like he's writing to uh, an individual person, a woman, and maybe her kids. But when you take a closer look, it becomes apparent the letter was most likely being written to another church, another one of the congregations that John oversaw in or around uh, Ephesus in Western uh, Asia Minor, where he spent his later years. Because first of all, much of the letter is written in um, second person plural, right? It means he was addressing issues affecting an entire group of people, not just one adult woman and some children. Also, uh, the word church in the Greek is feminine in gender, so addressing the church as a lady or the elect lady would not have seemed strange in first century uh, Greek culture. In other places in John's writings, he refers to the church as the bride of Christ. So 
the point is it wasn't out of character for John to address the church as a lady to begin with. And of course, the Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, Jesus himself, they all refer to the believers collectively throughout the New Testament as the elect, those who are chosen by God to be his people. So we can be reasonably certain here is the point that when John says to the elect lady and her children, he's using metaphor uh, to address one of the churches and its members in or around Ephesus, and he's tackling these same issues that he's been confronting in the first letter to one of the other congregations. And then he makes a point to emphasize the unity that is in common among them when he refers to the congregation as those whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. So it's not just uh, an emotional love, this feeling of affection, there is that, but it's rooted in truth. He says, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. In other words, John says, the church that I love, we all have the same truth living inside of us because we all have the spirit of Christ living inside of us and no one can take that away. It will be in us forever. No one can overcome us as long as we're united by this same truth and the same love for one another. In fact, the only real threat to the unity that we share, as we'll see as we continue reading, is the danger that we invite into our own lives and our own fellowship, and then we allow it to remain there and fester among us as it divides us from within. And so all of this is just a reminder to the church of exactly who we are and the power that we wield as members of God's family when we remain united against these menacing threats that sometimes rise up from within the church. Let's keep reading, verses four through nine. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward." Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So John is making his case to the local church that there is in fact a strict code of conduct that true followers of Jesus Christ are to live by. This great truth that he says we are to walk in, as he puts it. And that great truth, that strict code of conduct, is simply that we love one another with the love of Christ. And the way he says we do that, the way we love one another with the love of Christ is by living out our lives together according to the teachings of Christ, the truth of Christ that we're to abide in, the commandments of God, as John puts it, with this great commitment all the while to Jesus and to one another. Remember, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14, 15. In John 15, 10, he said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
So loving one another and keeping the commandments of God are directly linked. In fact, they're all together inseparable. You, you cannot have one without the other. And yet there were those among them, those within the church who were living by a different code of conduct. They were living and leading others to live according to a different set of teachings. And John says, I rejoice greatly to find what some of your children walking in the truth, which of course means that some of them were not walking in the truth. John calls them deceivers, antichrist, those who do not confess the truth about who Jesus Christ is. He's talking about people inside the church, by the way, and he says they're instead teaching a false version of the gospel. And so he goes on to explain everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. In other words, these false teachers claim to be Christians, but they're not true Christians. And what's interesting is how John goes on to explain that we as true Christians are to deal with those false teachers among us. Let's continue, verses 10 through 13. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So John says, if anyone comes to you with any teaching other than the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught by Jesus himself and his apostles, John calls it this teaching, right, that he's been teaching them. Then he says, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. And I'm just telling you to fully appreciate the force of what John is saying here. You have to appreciate what hospitality meant in the first century Mediterranean world because it didn't simply mean being kind to someone. That was certainly a part of it. But in the ancient world, true hospitality meant bringing someone into your home, providing food and lodging, often for extended periods of time because travel in the first century was slow and difficult. And under ancient law and custom, strangers had no inherent uh, standing in the community. They had no, no one automatically owed them anything or any kind of hospitality whatsoever, not even to be nice. And so when a traveling stranger entered a community seeking hospitality, he was actually seeking a place to stay and provisions while he was there, which was a means of survival for this stranger because once he was accepted as one of them by a local family, it was seen in the community as an endorsement of that person by that family, which meant he could then work and trade among that community until he saved enough money to continue his journey. And that's how they would travel. They couldn't necessarily take all of their supplies with them as we would today. And so when John says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, meaning this pure, unadulterated gospel, then do not receive him into your house, which is a uh, reference to the church, by the way. Remember, he's writing this to the church. Or give him any greeting. In other words, not only should you not welcome him into the church, but you shouldn't even welcome him at all. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. John's saying, if you welcome someone who's teaching any other gospel than what you've heard from me, any, anything other than the teachings of Christ, if you welcome that person into your family, 
into your church family, then in effect, you're endorsing not only that person, but you're endorsing their message as well. And in the process, you are inviting disaster upon yourselves. John is very forcefully teaching the church here to flatly reject the false teachers among us. And look, uh, I understand the whole uh, love the sinner, hate the sin mantra that Christians use all the time, which generally is true. But that's actually not what John is teaching here, specifically when it comes to false teachers, okay? He's not only saying reject false teaching in the church, he's also very clearly telling us to reject the false teachers themselves. And there's good reason for that, by the way, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But he says, uh, he doesn't say be nice to them, just don't give in to their teaching. He doesn't say show grace to them until they come around to our way of thinking. He doesn't say love them until they can no longer resist the love of Christ. No, he says not only don't take them in, don't bring them into your church, don't even greet them. I didn't say it, <laughs> John did. Remember, in, in his first century context, that meant to utterly and completely reject them, to shun them in every way. If a stranger came into the community and no one in that community showed them hospitality, no one took them into their home, that was a crystal clear message that you are not welcome here among us and we actually want you to leave. That is really harsh. It was. It was meant to be. It was meant to be very harsh and very clearly understood, but we struggle with this so much in our modern church culture. I understand. I struggle with it because we're so desperate for people to like us. We want so desperately to be seen as tolerant people. We want to be accepted by the mainstream culture so much that we've not only entertained, greeted, just about every imaginable perversion of the gospel that has come along in recent years by rising stars in our evangelical church culture, but we've even invited those who are teaching other versions of the gospel to come in and stay with us, to be a part of the church family. And by embracing them and their new ideas about the gospel, according to John, we're taking part in their false teaching and inviting disaster upon ourselves. So John says, don't accept them into your house. On the contrary, completely reject them. Unless we think, this is just John, by the way, being overly harsh, right? He's an angry old church guy because of his own bad experiences with false teachers. Let's just see what some of the other leaders had to say. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark traveled to a city called Salamis on the coast of Cyprus. And while teaching in the synagogue there uh, and the synagogues around the island, they encounter a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus who opposed the apostles with his own teaching. And here's what Luke says happened next. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. So we know this wasn't just Paul being an angry old religious church guy. Because Luke writes that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does Paul do? It says he looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, 
full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Acts 13, 9 through 11. I'll tell you, that makes John's command for us to shun false teachers seem mild in comparison. Peter warns us as well. He wrote to the church, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Wow, Peter, why so harsh? It's because of what is at stake. The church itself, because as soon as we begin following many different versions of the gospel within the church, that is the moment we begin to divide, which is precisely what we see in the American church today. Listen, the church was never meant to be a melting pot of ideas and alternate gospels where it's safe or okay to manipulate the message of Christ until it fits our personal preferences or the inclinations of a pop culture at any given point in history. No, the church was meant to be the keeper and the harbinger of truth. And there's only one truth the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the one that he preached, the one that his apostles preached, which by the way, when expressed without variation or modification is the ultimate expression of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. That's why John says in verse three, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. That's the key. Grace and mercy and peace, unity exists within the church only as we abide in truth and as we abide in love, which are not subjective ideas that we self-interpret as it suits us. And yet that's exactly how false teaching starts in the church. When someone decides they've discovered a better way to understand the word of God than the way it was taught by Jesus and himself and the apostles and the early church leaders for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so they begin teaching their own version of the gospel and leading others away from the truth. Now, I want to point something out again here because John is not talking about people who are simply lost. He's not talking about those who have yet to hear and receive the gospel. He's not talking about people who've been taught something else or belong to a false religion and yet they don't understand the gospel. He's not talking about those who are living in gross sin and in need of the truth and the love of Christ. He's not talking about your unsaved friends that you invite to church, okay? We should desire for all of those people that I just mentioned to be in the church all the time. Why? So that we can share the love of Christ and the truth of Christ with them. Now, what John is talking about are people who have heard and understand the truth. They know it well. People who claim to already be Christians and yet they're actively 
and intentionally attempting to lead others away from the true gospel of Christ by teaching some other version of that gospel, which again is rampant in the American church today. More and more people are succumbing to it all the time. Now, we have Baptists, we have uh, Presbyterians, we have Methodists, we have Church of God, we have Assemblies of God, many other Christian denominations who differ on certain points of doctrine. Yes, but we're all teaching the same gospel. I personally know and have spent meaningful time with many, many other pastors from many other Christian denominations from all over this area and other parts of the country, even other parts of the world. And although we may disagree on some philosophies of ministry or church government or even minor points of theology, we all believe in the same gospel. There's a very real unity a common love for the church among us, which is based upon the same truth and the same love that Jesus Christ shared with his disciples. Where the division begins to come from within the churches, however, is when a person decides that the gospel as it is written is untenable, incompatible with our culture today. And so they come up with their own slightly new version of that gospel, one that makes us feel much more comfortable with and much less at odds with the culture around us, while at the same time putting us directly at odds with the church. And then they write a book promoting their new ideas about the gospel, and they start a blog and a podcast and a media following, and in the process they lead masses of people who find their new message much easier to accept than the gospel that Jesus taught. They lead them away from the church. You can watch them leave the church it's a conversation I have all the time with people who've decided they can love the world while despising the church and still believe they're following Jesus Christ. But the hard truth is, you cannot love Jesus without loving his church. If you're going to love him, you're going to love his bride which means flatly rejecting those who would divide her by teaching any message other than the one he and his apostles taught. Okay? Listen. The gospel has always been at odds with the culture. Always. It has been in tension with the culture around it from, from the moment Jesus arrived till today. Which means if you entertain any new version of the gospel and it makes you feel less at odds with the culture, less in tension with the message of pop culture, then I'm telling you, you can count on the fact that what you're entertaining is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. John said, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Let's keep reading. Third John, we'll do the first eight verses. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you're walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 
Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So once again, John's writing to another fellow believer in his congregation, and he's commending them for taking care of those within the church, those who walk in the truth, as John puts it. And so he takes time to emphasize this love that Gaius has proven for the church in the way that he cares for those in the church, even those who are complete strangers, those who are just traveling through. There's still a great love and a unity among them because what qualifies them as members of the same family is not familiarity. It is the common spirit of truth that they're all walking in. And yet, even in this local church, it's not all sunshine and roses, as we'll see. Let's keep reading. Verse 9 to the end. I've written something to the church, but, but Diotrephus, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and, the con and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon. We will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. So after a warm greeting to Gaius, John addresses another source of division within the church, but this time it's not false teaching. Rather, it is a man who's rebelling against the authority of the leadership within the church, and it's clearly causing division among them. As John points out, he refuses to welcome the brothers, he says, and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So this guy who's rejected the authority of the church leadership is tearing the church apart from the inside out. He's actually throwing other people out of the church, excommunicating those who take in believers who are traveling through the community. In other words, he's treating the true believers as if they were the false teachers, refusing to even greet them, to invite them in, while at the same time rejecting John and the other leaders in the church. And so John says, Beloved, do not imitate evil. Do not be like this man. Imitate good. In other words, reject the rebellious among us, which is never easy to do. I'll tell you, I've been in church a long time. It is far easier to remain quiet and allow rebellious people in the church to do what they do because the moment you confront them, they will typically try to turn the tables and accuse you of being part of the problem. Rebellious people are bullies who try to intimidate others to get their own way, which has been going on from the first century to this century in the church. It's nothing new. Rebellious people always try to turn the tables on anyone who stands up to them. It's just what Diotrephus was doing. He was treating the people in the church who were doing the right thing. Those who loved the church and were honoring the directives of its leadership. He was treating them as if they were the problem. And then he was throwing them out of the church because rebellious people cannot handle being told what to do by anyone else. They cannot deal 
with authority in their own lives. And again, John says Diotrephus likes to put himself first and does not acknowledge our authority. The problem with that is the church was designed and created by God to function under authority. Of course, the authority of Jesus Christ and his word above all others. In fact, he is the senior pastor over all of us. And then the authority of those who function in apostolic roles, those who plant new churches, and then the pastors, the elders, the overseers who shepherd those local churches, and then the deacons who administrate the individual ministries in the church, and then those who work within those ministries and so on. Look, there's no way around it. The church is governed under and through a structure of authority. It's all throughout the New Testament, but a rebellious person will always refuse to recognize that authority and will even work against it and left to their own devices. If not confronted and dealt with, they will ultimately tear a local church apart. Honestly, I can't tell you how many examples we've seen over the years of just that happening. Someone who thinks that just because they've been there longer than anyone else, they don't have to submit to any authority in the church. Someone who thinks that because they give more in the offering than anyone else, they don't have to submit to the authority in the church. There are people who see themselves as independent, self-made, never relying on the church's resources so they don't feel any compulsion to submit to the authority of the church. Very often those who entertain various teachings of Christ, variations on the gospel, they will start believing that they are now somehow enlightened. They know better than all of those uh, angry old church people and so they don't have to submit to the authority of the church, which is actually what some of the scholars believe was happening with Diotrephus here. That he was following a false teaching that John was referring to in his second letter that we just read. It was a variation of the gospel. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, the early church father in the second century AD, wrote about it extensively. It was called docetism. And, and so perhaps that through that false teaching, Diotrephus felt he no longer needed to heed the words of the apostle. And therein lies the problem. Any situation where people think they, they don't have to submit to the church's authority in their lives, can and often will result in that individual rebelling against all leadership in their lives as they reject the teaching and authority of the church in their lives, which includes, uh, can I say it includes preachers, by the way? We are under authority as much or more as anyone else. And as we all know from watching the television, we can rebel against the authority as much or more as anyone else. So hear me, this teaching applies to every single one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. We have a responsibility to not only submit to authority as members of the church, but also to deal with those in the church who are actively rebelling against that authority, which is what John was doing. He was dealing with this rebellious person. And by the way, he was doing it publicly among the church. He mentions in verse nine that he's written to the church. So it isn't just a private matter between the apostle and Diotrephus. This is a church-wide matter because it is affecting the entire congregation, which is the model set out for us by Jesus himself. Matthew 18, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Just what John was talking about. Have nothing to do with him. Once you've confronted the, rebellion, uh, the rebellious person twice privately, Bring him before the church publicly, and if he still refuses to submit to the authority of the church, have nothing more to do with him, okay? Jesus said that because he loved the church. Titus 3, 10 and 11, Paul said, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. Paul said that because he loved the church. The prescription was harsh to have nothing more to do with the person who stirs up division within the church. Romans 16, 17 through 18, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul says to avoid those who cause division. Why? Because of his undying love for the church. Okay, it's all throughout the New Testament teaching by Jesus and the apostles. The two most common sources of division from within the church, false teaching and rebellion. They were never tolerated. On the contrary, they were confronted and dealt with sometimes publicly and often quite harshly. And yet the motivation behind all of it was a great love for the church. And ultimately, look, ultimately, it was also for the restoration of those offenders. Being shunned by the church community in the first century was a really big deal. It was intended to bring the offender to a place of repentance and restoration whenever possible so that they could see the true motivation behind their own actions, which really should be the litmus test for all of us. Anytime we're about to question the teaching or authority from within the church, which sometimes needs to be done, by the way, sometimes that's the healthiest thing that needs to happen, but I'm simply saying, before you do that, we should always ask ourselves with brutal honesty, am I doing this because I love the church and its leadership? Or am I doing this out of selfishness and pride? Am I putting others first or am I putting myself first? Am I leading others to the church or am I leading them away from the church? Because anything done out of rebellion was not to be tolerated in the church then and it is not to be tolerated now. Why? Because it tears the church apart from the inside out and we have no right to do that. We have no right to assault or otherwise bring reproach upon the, the church of Jesus Christ, which means upon each other. We are the church. In fact, we were never even given permission by Jesus to be indifferent about the church, let alone to come against it. On the contrary, our entire lives are supposed to be devoted to the fellowship of the church, to serving the church, to laying our lives down for one another in the church. 
That's supposed to be our focus. So why in the world, if Jesus lived and died to save the church, and the apostles lived and died to sustain the church, and countless scores of men and women have lived and died and are dying today, right now, to defend the church, why in the world do we think it's okay for us to be indifferent about the church? And yet for many professing Christians today, the church is nothing more than an afterthought. Something we might participate in on a Sunday as long as it doesn't interfere with the other things we'd rather be doing. And I'm telling you that our lack of commitment, our indifference toward the church can actually become a rebellion against the church. Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. That was no part-time commitment. He said, greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you, and listen, I appointed you. He appointed us that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask my Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Okay? The church wasn't a great suggestion by Jesus. It was a great command by Jesus, that we live our lives for one another with such great love and devotion that we refuse to tolerate anything that would tear us apart from within. And listen, we're going to need that kind of love and devotion for the church more than ever before as we go forward because this church is growing. And as we grow, we expand. And as we expand and the days tick by, we're reaching further and further into our community and beyond. We're going places we haven't gone before. We're engaged in ministry we haven't experienced before. And I'm telling you, the more we grow and the further we reach, there will be times when we will end up in places where people don't want us to be there. There will be times when people will rail against our message. There will be times when people rise up against us and the truth is we can handle all of those attacks and more from those outside of the church as we carry out this great commission. In fact, that is to be expected. But the one thing that will stop the church dead in its tracks is when those attacks come from within and we do nothing about it. You see, indifference is actually the greatest form of rebellion against the church there is. Indifference. That's the greatest form of rebellion against the church there is. Indifference, not caring, will close a church's doors faster than anything else. So I close with this. Do I love the church? Ask yourself. Do I love the church like the martyrs have through the ages? Do I love the church like the apostles did who suffered for her? Do I love the church like Jesus did who died for her? 
Do I love the church enough to confront those who would come against her from within? Do I love the church enough to defend her with my very life? Because that's what it will take to defeat indifference. Loving the church more than we love ourselves. Let's pray.